Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. In Revelation 1 verse 18, Jesus says he is the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. Today we explore this place called Hades and all that the Bible has to say about it, its location, purpose, and population. If you've missed any of our messages from our expository study in Revelation, download them at truthmatterschurch.org. Here is Pastor Alex. We are continuing our study in the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. And the title of our lesson today is The Keys of Death and Hades. As I mentioned in our introductory comments, um, we will go on a bit of an excursion and kind of take a look to see what more can we glean when the risen Lord made this claim. And I trust that as we go through this journey together, that we will find ourselves maybe even sharpened in our understanding of these realities. Um, The goal for our study today is to get through chapter 1. And what we'll do is, for the last time, we will pick up the the scripture reading for today from verse 9 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pick it up in verse 18. So let's remind ourselves of the text. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we're going to be picking up our expository teaching in verse 18. And when we're at this point in the vision... Remember, John sees the glorified Son of Man when he turned behind to look and he saw seven golden lampstands and I argue that that's seven golden menorahs and Christ standing in the middle and he starts to describe the risen Christ from head to toe to hand to mouth 
And he, we went through that extensively in our study. What John is doing now in this point in the vision, he is now communicating what the risen Son of Man is saying. And part of what he is saying is in verse 18, he made the statement, I am the living one and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So in this vision, John is quoting the risen Son of Man. And we covered the first part of verse 18 in our last study. And today we're going to pick up in, from the second part of verse 18. And we're going to look at the phrase, I have the keys of death and of Hades. And this is the title and focus of our study today. So let's look at this claim. So Jesus speaking says, I have. And this is in the present tense. And at this point in the vision, Jesus already possessed the keys of death and of Hades. So if we're kind of keeping track on where we are in this vision, remember in our introductory study, we came away with the book of Revelation was likely written around 95 or 96 A.D. So if we want to be technical, when Jesus said, I have the keys of death and of Hades, he already had it at least by 95 or 96 A.D. But as I pondered, I said, okay, you've already had it by that point. My curiosity started to peak and saying, well, when were you given the keys of death and of Hades? And I came across the Great Commission account, and this helps narrow the timing a bit more. So let me read, out, read that for us. The very familiar Great Commission in Matthew 28 We'll pick it up in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, here it is, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things which I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this narrows down. If you're wondering, when was all authority given to the Lord Jesus Christ when he made this great commission statement, he had all authority in heaven and earth by that time. He already possessed the keys of death and of Hades. So then this strikes another chord chord in Scripture for me, and that is in our familiar Philippians 2 passage. In in our Philippians 2 passage, it's it's the... common passage that we've talked about at least a few times in our study when Paul says, you know, have this mind um, in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that also he was being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and he, he humbled himself, even obedient, you know, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it says, therefore, God the Father highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord or Kyrios to the glory of God the Father. So, if you're wondering, okay, when was that? At least for me, that's my career. When was Christ highly exalted and bestowed upon the name or title of Lord of His Father? When was that given to Him? And I want to say this. 
and maybe some of you might have been there, I assumed it was in his ascension when he went back to the Father. Maybe some of you might have been there. But that can't be true. Because when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he already was given all authority in heaven and on earth. So here, I want to ask us a question. Does anyone want to venture to guess? When was Jesus exalted, given all authority in heaven and on earth, and bestowed by his Father the title of Lord or Kyrios? Does anyone want to take a guess? At his death? Here's, I'll give you a clue. Jesus ascended more than once. That's a clue. Does anyone want to take a guess with that? Transfiguration? He was glorified. They saw his glory, but he wasn't given a, he, he didn't go through his humiliation yet. Remember, Philippians 2 says, because he humbled himself even to the obedience to death, even death on the cross. So it had to happen sometime after the cross. Because, because of his humiliation and his obedience to his father, his father highly exalted him and then gave him the title Lord and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. Does anyone want to take a guess on when that happened? Very good. During the Feast of Firstfruits, after that Passover in AD 30. And with that, what I'd like to kind of show us um, a slide from our Good Wednesday study when we took a look at you know, pretty much the, the last week of our Lord and including the Feast of Passover, including the Feast of, you know, or a Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you'll see here, we're looking at it from a Jewish calendar and standpoint, and I try to put our Gregorian days in here. But here you'll see Nisan. This is the month of Nisan. Nisan 14, when, you know, and again, you can go to that study, that would put that on a Wednesday, is when Jesus died around 3 p.m. He was in the tomb for three full days and three full nights, and then sometime that Saturday night, he rose from the dead. That's the first, you know, that's the, that is a Nisan 18. And then the Feast of first fruits would be the first day of the week after the Sabbath during Passover, which would put it right here. Feast of first fruits. And this is day one of the Feast of Weeks. When we hear Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, on the 50th day is Pentecost. But that is day one. And then on day 50 is when the Holy Spirit was poured upon the believers in Jerusalem. But that morning is when Jesus ascended. When Mary Magdalene went to the tomb that Sunday morning, it was already empty. And we're going to pick it up when she found the tomb empty in John 20. And we'll pick it up in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside, and that's Mary Magdalene, the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she, stopped, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. 
Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, highlight this, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now I'm reading from the NAS, but the New King James captures the tense of the verb here. And the NES says, I ascend to. Here's a more, I think we'll get this. I am ascending to my Father. Because he said, I haven't ascended yet, but I am ascending. So tell the disciples that I'm ascending back to the Father. To my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Here's the truth. Jesus' first ascension recorded in Scripture Post-resurrection was during the Feast of First Fruits, Nisan 18, A.D. 30. So here's our deduction. Jesus' humiliation and exaltation recorded in Philippians 2, it must have occurred when Jesus presented himself to his Father as the first fruits offering of being raised from the dead. And Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll pick it up in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep or died. For since by a man came death, by also a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So here's my case in point. When we get to Revelation 18, And when Jesus made the claim, I have the keys of death and of Hades, he was given those keys when he was given all power and authority in heaven and on earth by his Father when he presented himself as the first fruits offering to his Father, that Nisan 18, 80, 30. Let's look at now when he says the keys. He says, I have present tense, the keys. Let's look at that a little closer. So keys is kleis, and it's from the root word kleo, and it means to shut or to close. Now when we hear keys in our English language, we think about keys maybe going into a house or a car. That is not the essence of this Greek word of kleis. But rather, here's the idea and emphasis behind this word. When you say you have the keys You're saying you have the authority to bind and imprison and to loose. You have authority to bind or imprison and to loose. When you say you have the keys, you're saying you have that right and authority. So I want to show you this a little further in the account of Peter's confession as to who Jesus is. And we'll pick it up in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but others, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And, here's a mention, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys, I will give you the kleist, of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven now in this passage when jesus says and you are peter you are petrus petrus means rock or stone it's a play on words but i want us to look at kleis in this passage and how it's associated with to bind and loose so let's look at that a little more So bind is dio, and it does mean to tie or imprison or even put in chains. And loose is luo, and it's the opposite. It means to untie, to unbind, or release. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And we know Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And because of that confession... Jesus acknowledged that flesh and blood didn't tell you that, Peter, but my Father in heaven. And Jesus blessed Peter and goes on to say, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And this rock is not Peter. It is what his name stood for, Petras, rock, or stone upon this rock, upon this stone of the confession that you just made because my Father from heaven revealed it to you. Upon that confession, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail from it. And I want to make a a side note here. If you were to ask the Catholic Church, why do you have popes? Why is there the papacy? They'll go to Peter. Look, they'll go right here, Matthew 16. Christ said, upon Peter, I will build my church. And from there, they say there is apostolic concession. And from there came the papacy saying, well, there's going to be authority that's given to a man on earth following Peter. That's where the Catholic church went. But this is not what Jesus intended to say at all. Remember our rules of engagement. We must interpret Scripture literally. Jesus told Peter, I will give you, who's you? Peter, Simon, Barjona. I will give you, Simon, Barjona, the kleis of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom. Peter, not any other apostles, not not, not the Pope papacy that followed, were given the keys of the kingdom. Simon Peter was given the Kleist. And it just dawned on me, I was like, wow, that's a pretty remarkable statement. Remember, Peter denied Jesus or ends up denying Jesus three times. And then Jesus asked him if he loved him three times. But even all that being considered, Jesus already determined to give Peter the Kleist of the kingdom. So Peter's confession as to who Jesus is, was, is the foundation upon which Jesus will build his church and the gates of Hades will not 
overpower it. So here's a truth. The church, when I'm saying the church, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have the Holy Spirit residing in them, here's a truth. The gates of Hades will not win and overpower you and me. To reward Peter for his true confession, Jesus will give, because he didn't get the keys yet. He was given the keys on the Feast of First Fruits when he presented himself to his Father. But he's saying when he, when he gets that, then the keys of the kingdom, he will give it to Peter. And I want to just say this briefly, because we can really kind of go on a detour here. But follow Acts. Follow the book of Acts. Who was the prominent apostle and spokesperson in the beginning? Peter. During Pentecost, he gave his great sermon. 3,000 souls were saved that day. He had some pretty good keys there. Those 3,000 souls were saved because of Peter's confession as to who Jesus was. When you read the account, read the great sermon, men of Israel, look what you've done. You've killed the Messiah. But this was part of the preordained plan of God. He's confessing as to who Jesus was. And he's declaring it to them. And what? They were pierced to the heart after he confessed. He he stayed true to his confession as to who the Christ was. So people are saved. Here's the truth. How are people saved? We're like, yeah, share them the gospel. What's the gospel? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Yeshua of Scripture is? Who do you say that he is? What's your confession? People have opinions about this Yeshua. Is he the Son of God, the Christ, the one sent of the Father, the only begotten Son of the Father, the only Savior of the world, the one who was given all authority in heaven and on earth by his Father so that he can seek and save that which is lost? Is that who Yeshua is to you? That's how you're saved. You say yes and amen. Then you are on the side of Peter's confession. You are on the side of the confession and testimony of Scripture. That's how people are saved. It is not pragmatic. It's who do you say that Yeshua is? And if you follow, you continue to follow Acts, you'll see Peter, he and John, they were even imprisoned for preaching the Gospel. They were, but they were unbound by angels. And Peter, here's a... Here's a clear indicator that he has the Christ of the kingdom. You know the account of Ananias and Sapphira? When they conspired, they sold the land, but they conspired to hold some money back, and they presented the proceeds, but representing that it was the full cost of the land. And what did Peter say? Why has Satan so filled your heart that you lied to the Holy Spirit? And he opened the grave, if you will, and they were taken in. Ananias first, and then three hours later, his wife comes in not knowing what happened to her husband. And she lied and conspired too. And he goes, the men that have carried your husband away will now carry you too. He had authority, ladies and gentlemen. He had the keys of the kingdom. And his anointing was so prevalent that even the shadow of Peter would heal anyone with infirmities. Peter... Simon Peter, Simon Barjona, was given by the Lord Jesus Christ the authority 
of the kingdom. And if you follow, not only was there 3,000 in that, that, that Pentecost day, but you follow the acts of the apostles. And there was another day where 5,000 got sold and many and many people started to get saved because Peter was given the kingdom or the keys to the kingdom and was building on the foundation of his testimony concerning who Jesus is. And as long as that testimony is true and people are holding to that true confession, then you are on solid ground. And death or in, and Hades will not overpower you. And we're going to see what that is in a little moment. So what's implied in Matthew 16 is Jesus will have the clice of the kingdom, and we know that's going to be after the first fruits offering is made by Yeshua to his father. So if you just want to be technical, not only does Jesus have the, the keys of death and of Hades, but Jesus also has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But what I want us to take away from Matthew 16, and we're going to tie this back into Revelation 1.18. This is what I want us to grasp. I have the keys is associated with authority to bind and loose. And we're going to talk a little bit more of that shortly. But when Jesus says I have the keys and all authority has been given, he has authority to bind and to loose. So in verse 18, when he says he has the keys of death and of Hades, Jesus is declaring that he not only has overcome death and Hades, but he has full authority over death and Hades, including to bind and loose those in them. And we're going to see that a little bit. There's people who are in death. There's people who are in Hades. And Jesus is saying, whoever, uh, the one who has authority, even those who are in death and in Hades, uh, Jesus himself is the one who has authority to keep them there and to even loose them. Here's where we're going to get into um, the subject and topic of Hades. And some of us are used to saying hell. When you say hell, you're referring to Hades. You, you are, I'm talking about in, in the, at least in the New Testament. But let's look at now what the scripture says about Hades. And concerning Hades, I, I do want to say we can spend a series on this topic. We can spend several weeks here but I'm going to do an accelerated overview because I want to finish chapter one. In the Old Testament, we're taking notes. What is the equivalent of Hades in the Old Testament? It is Sheol. S-H-E-O-L. Sheol. And that's mentioned 66 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, here's the neat thing. Hades is only mentioned 10 times. So guess what I did? I looked at all 10 mentions. And I'm going to do my best to say, okay, what can we learn about Hades based on those 10 mentions in Scripture? But here's just something. It's, it's a little confusing sometimes because Hades, or in the Old Testament, Shoal, it could mean just the grave where the body is laid. That's one interpretation. But it can also mean the place where the soul resides. What I mean is this. When the body dies and is laid on the ground, let's say, so to speak, your soul isn't also in the ground. Your soul is somewhere else. And we're going to talk a little, bit, a little bit more about that. But just to kind of keep in mind, when we're talking about Hades, and we're talking about, let's say, Shoal, you have to consider the context. 
Are you talking about the actual grave? Or are you looking beyond the grave, more in the spiritual side of things that we can't see? Because it can be either or, depending on the context. But So we're going to look at Hades and its characteristics and descriptions. We're going to look at those ten mentions of it in the New Testament. If you're wondering, where is Hades? Where is its geographic location? All I can tell you, it's down. And in Matthew eleven twenty three, when Jesus was denouncing the cities of where most of his miracles were done, he says there, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So if heaven's up, Hades is down. I think we kind of get that. Well, that's consistent. Because Capernaum will descend, come, or be brought down into Hades. Hades is down. Here's something maybe you might not have pondered. Hades has gates. We just read this, Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Gates is pule, and it is used to describe a large door or a gate to the city or you know to a city. So back in ancient times, when there was a city or a town, they had a pule. They had city gates. Do you remember Rahab and the spies? The gates, or, or there was gates, and then there was a wall that kind of bordered the city for protection. Hades has gates. So just like there's a city of Lincoln. There is a city of Rockland, etc. There is a city of Hades. I'm going to take this further. There are citizens of Hades. And here's a truth. Believers, we're citizens of heaven. Amen? Unbelievers and the angels that rebelled are citizens of Hades. We're talking about Hades now. What we know is hell. What is it? It's down. It has gates like a city. And it has citizens. Let's keep going. And we're going to spend some time here in our Luke 16 passage uh, concerning the rich man and Lazarus because there's just so much here that we can glean from. Another, th- another characteristic about Hades or what we might associate as hell, it's a place of torment and it is far away from paradise. Let me say that again. Hades, this place that's down, that has city gates, so to speak, is a place of torment. And as far as its geographic location, not only is it down, but wherever paradise is in this other realm, it's far away. So let's pick it up in Luke 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and in fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate. That's not pule, by the way. There's another Greek word for that covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And I want to make this note here because there's some teaching out there that teach that Abraham's bosom is a place. 
the city of Abraham's bosom. Like, what? No, really, there's, there's some teachings that, oh, Abraham's bosom is a place, let's say even within Hades, there's a Abraham's bosom, this location. Abraham's bosom means Abraham's bosom. Who's Abraham? The forefather of ultimately the Jewish race, right? From Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that Abraham. Abraham's side, his chest. Lazarus was taken to his chest. Bosom, there. The rich man saw Lazarus on Abraham's side. Not the city of Abraham's side, okay? I'm just making that clear. But we got that. The Hades is a place of torment. This rich man died. His body was laid. Somehow his spirit wakes up in Hades and he's in torment and he sees Abraham and Lazarus. But let's, let's, what else can we glean from this account? Verse 24, and he, and this is the rich man who died, he cried out and said, Father Abraham. So just that statement, Father Abraham. The rich man was a Jew. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus and presumably a poor Jew taken to his father Abraham's bosom so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flames. So another thing that's characteristic of Hades. It's a place of agony in flames. I want to, I want to, flame is flux. And it means to burn. Here's a warning. There's teaching out there that defines hell or Hades. They'll say something like, oh, hell is being away from the presence of God and kind of leaves it there. Really? The Bible says... If we were to look at the rich man as an example, he was in agony and he was in torment and he was in flames. He was burning up. That's more than just being away from the presence of God. In fact, you can even say where we live now, God's not here yet. People are already living, so to speak, not in his presence and they're not burning. So when you say, oh, someone's just living you know, apart from the presence of God, people can get comfortable with that because they already don't have God in their life and we're not doing anyone any favors by trying to water that down. That's not true. Hell or Hades is a place of burning fire, quite literally. So much so that even this rich man, Lazarus, longed. Can you imagine just dipping your finger in just water, and just touching his tongue with just that little drop. It's a pretty, pretty tormentous place. But the same account tells us more of Hades. Not only is it a place of agony and flames, here's another thing concerning Hades. It's fixed and final. Once you wake up in Hades, done. Your eternal destiny has been secured in that way. And I want to read this as we continue on and show this. But Abraham said, we'll pick it up in verse 25, child, he's speaking to the rich man. He goes, remember that during your life, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that 
you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And I want to make this side note here as I'm kind of looking at this passage of Scripture. You can communicate. There's communication between Hades and paradise. They're talking to each other. They can see each other. You know, now we have our phones and FaceTimes and what have you to kind of stay connected. Well, I don't know what it is on that side, but whatever it is, they can see each other. Now, we can kind of go a lot lot with that. So for example, if we die in Christ and we're we're where Abraham is and the rest of the redeemed are, and we have loved ones who didn't believe Peter's confession, we're going to be able to see and talk with them. What do you say to someone who is in that place and there's nothing you can do? And what's interesting, when you look at this story, he started to have some compassion, didn't he? He started to say, well, I have five brothers. Can you please warn them? I don't want them to come here. And you know the story, we just read it. He goes, well, they have Moses and the prophets. The Jews have the oracles of God. He's like, well, if they won't listen to Moses or the prophets, they wouldn't even listen if someone were to rise from the dead. And let's say that was even the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But what I want us to get from here also is there is a great chasm fixed between Hades and where Abraham is. And let's see, that's paradise. Great chasm is megas chasma. If you're wondering, what's a chasm? Well, it's a great wide space so wide that someone, whoever is in Hades, can go to paradise and those who are in paradise cannot go to Hades. There is like this great space in between the two. And here's the truth. Once a citizen of Hades, always a citizen of Hades. Let me say that again. Once you wake up in Hades, you will be in torment as a citizen of Hades forever and ever. And Hebrews touches on this, and I want to read this. Hebrews 9.27 And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. And there's so much truths we're talking about today. If you are wondering, is there a second chance after death? If you are wondering the teaching concerning purgatory, if there is any truth to that, it's a lie. Look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. There's no purgatory there. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. And inasmuch as it is appointed to men to die once, after you die, after this comes the judgment. There is no second chance after death. There is no purgatory. There is no penance that you can do once you've died. If you died apart from believing in Peter's confession as to who Jesus is and was, you will not wake up in purgatory. You will not be given a second chance. You will forever be 
a citizen of Hades. Contrasted with, for believers, we are citizens of paradise of heaven. We're citizens of paradise. We're citizens of heaven. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? As I'm saying, this, was, this is a very, it's very sensitive, but this is what this scripture teaches. And my prayer in the beginning was, hey, this is pretty heavy, but it's true. So, of course, what's in our best interest is to flee to the Savior, to rescue us from this place and being thrown there. And why do we go to the Savior? Because He alone has the authority to either keep us there or to keep us from there. But that chance only remains as long as we live on this side of heaven. God has determined how long everyone's going to live. Okay. Yeah, we have a will, we, have, we, we can take care of our health or we don't, and all that stuff comes into play. But at the end of the day, God ordered our days. God determined how long we are going to live, ultimately. And if you were kind of take a step back, why did God give you an X amount of time to live? So that you, along with Peter, would believe the confession as to who Yeshua is. That's it. Keep it simple. That's what's going to keep people either from being a citizen of Hades or a citizen of heaven or of paradise. Right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to escape being a citizen of this place of Hades is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have life. Yeah, we can prosper, we can have families and relationships and experience life, and God uses all that, I'm sure. But when it comes down to our eternal destiny, there is really nothing more important than that. Our, our salvation, our soul, that is God's breath in us that's going to live forever, there is nothing more important than our salvation. And He's given us time so that we can receive salvation through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he'll take care of the rest. But there's, there's more on Hades. Let, let, let's look at what, we else, what else we can glean from it. Hades has abandoned souls. So the souls that are there are abandoned. So when I mentioned earlier, there's some teaching out there that they're kind of absent from the presence of God. Okay, that's partly true. If you want to say they were abandoned there, but it's not just but it is, it, there's more to just being abandoned. There's also that torment and agony and flames. But Hades, a characteristic of Hades, that's where abandoned souls are. And I want to read Acts 2, and this is Peter's great sermon. And when Peter is giving this great sermon to the men of Israel who are there, that Pentecost, and they heard the Holy Spirit come and, uh, and even appear as tongues as a fire and distributing among the believers there, he quotes David. And this is what he quotes in that great sermon. We'll pick it up in verse 25. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because, and here's the, uh, the son talking to the father, you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So this was one of David's prophecy concerning the Father and Christ. And we know this because if you were to 
continue to read in this same chapter, we'll pick it up in verse 30. And so when he, David, was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And he, Jesus Christ, was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses the father didn't abandon Jesus's soul to Hades nor did he allow Jesus's body to undergo decay instead Jesus was taken to be with his father in paradise and we know this the thief of the cross on the account. We know the story when, when there was initially there was two, you know, there was a, Jesus was hung on the cross with two thieves, one to his right and one to his left. At first, they both hurled insults at him. And then later, one of the thieves repented and went and, and turned to Jesus and saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus tell him? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's an, here's an implied truth. I don't know if you guys ponder this. The Father is the one who leaves abandoned souls in Hades like the rich man. If you're wondering, who in the Godhead is the one who's abandoning souls? It's the Father. So if we come across this debated truth or, debated truth or doctrine concerning election. But here's the truth talking about God, the election of God, the Father. Election, when I'm talking about election to salvation, is solely and wholly of God the Father. We all know the story. Jesus said, no one can come to, the, no one can come to me unless the Father drags him, Helco, drags him to me. This is what Paul means when he calls God the Father the potter in Romans 9. He is the potter. He has the right to take all of humanity. And if he wants to abandon some souls in Hades, who are we, O man, to talk back to God? He is the potter. But we know also through Scripture that's not the Father's desire. So there's this tension. You're like, okay, wait, we know salvation is solely, an election is solely of God the Father, and Jesus simply came to, say, to seek and to save the elect which God has given to the Son. We get all that, but there is this tension that God the Father, He doesn't take pleasure in giving punishment or judgment to the wicked. Rather, He would have men and women repent and be saved. So when people are abandoned in Hades, it's because ultimately they refuse to repent and believe Peter's true confession as to who Yeshua really is. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. We'll pick up the last half of this message next time in part two of this study. Hades, it's a pretty heavy topic, but an important one. Hades is a real place, an eternal place. But Scripture promises that while we have breath in our lungs, if we repent and believe in Christ, 
we will be saved from Hades and ultimately the judgment of God. If you're not sure where you stand today, please take this moment to pray and ask God for forgiveness and for the faith to turn from your sins. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you are saved, take this opportunity to thank God for saving you, for revealing His Son to you, and not only for saving you from eternal damnation, but also allowing you to live your life here for His glory. If you've missed any part of our study, you can find all of them on our website, truthmatterschurch.org. And be sure to check out our ad-free 24-hour stream of Bible teaching, devotionals, and more. Visit truthmattersradio.com to listen anytime. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.